Hello and welcome to episode 105 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name is Rod Murray and what matters on this episode is a laundry list of issues from both within and outside the game many of which we'll no doubt touch on today. From the shock news during the week that Fox has opted out of their contract with the USGA to be replaced by NBC, to the coronavirus coming close to home, several cases on the PGA Tour, and Golf Channel's Charlie Reimer suffering a particularly severe dose of the disease, golf continues to navigate stormy waters. We'll chat about all that, plus I'm sure there'll be mention of Bryson DeChambeau's new physique and game, not to mention his comments about Donald Ross. So who makes up the rest of this collective we I keep talking about? Well, let's meet them now, including a very special return guest I'll bring in in a moment from the US where they may never have been, there may never have been a busier time to be a golf blogger podcaster and general media type it's Jeff Shackleford Jeff crazy times showing no signs of slowing down in golf or the world more broadly at the moment no no I've had busier but this is definitely the the trickiest time as to what to cover and what to talk about and and when to uh, just kind of be uh, uh, providing good distraction and when it's good to Chime in and, and question some things. I think we're all in the same boat. From his home base away from home, where he's been isolating in luxury, not far from the beautiful St Andrews Beach course on the morning to Peninsula, it's Mike Clayton. Clates, your Twitter feed suggests you've been keeping pretty busy down there. Not a bad place to isolate if you have to. It's pretty nice. I think Tom Doug said if there was one course he'd love to live two minutes down the road from his house, or, or have two minutes down the road from his house, it'd be St Andrews Beach. So that's me. So it's been nice. Yeah. It's been- that's a tough question, isn't it? The one course to be two minutes away from. That's too narrow. You can't do that. Uh, but yes, you're uh, you're doing uh, pretty well. Also from Melbourne, having recently returned from St Andrews Beach himself, where he took part in an interesting little event organised by Clates. It's the 1996 German Amateur Open champion, Jeff Ogilvy. Jeff, <laughs> a full decade before you landed the big prize at Winged Foot. Good to have you back. Anything stand out in the memory banks about that week in Germany? Happy hunting round for yourself and your running mate at the time, Steve Allen, won the German Open himself a year or two later, I think. Yeah, Whittles back at golf club. 96, it must be a yeah precursor to success. I don't know. I remember it was a great week. It was a typical German course, so Jeff and Clates would know what I mean by that. <laughs> I was going to um, say, what is a typical German course? Very efficient? Is that the, is it the stereotype um, we think of? Different from how we like to see golf courses, but it was plenty fun, and it was a great time. Yeah, Germany's a great week. I love going to Germany. Now, I think... This is completely unrelated, but kind of related because of the Germany thing. I think the first time I ever interviewed you would have been 2000 and something. And we talked about, you played the German Open, I think the third or the final round with Tiger Woods. We were talking about Tiger. Because I remember you oh, telling the me. Deutsche Bank, the Deutsche Bank TPC tournament. Yeah. yeah. The biggest, the second biggest tournament in Europe at yeah. the time, I guess. Yeah, probably. that's right. Because um, I remember you telling me. he always used to come because yeah. Deutsche Bank or SAP had paid for him to come over. So yeah, that was my first time with him. That was 90, 2000. Yeah, there you go. So, and that you gave me a great German course. You gave me a great lead. Don't be distracted by Tiger. That's the danger of playing with Tiger. Is you start watching him and you forget about your own game. That's what you told me back then, and I thought that was uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, We'll come back to you in a minute, Jeff Ogley. Multiple times, we'll come back to you about all sorts of stuff. I'm sure, but I wanted to go to you first, Shaq, just for a general thumbnail sketch update on the state of the virus in the US and all the state, also the state of the PGA Tour and the virus. Both of those seem to be sort of moving targets. It would seem, and I know. You're uh, reasonably good friends with Charlie Reimer. What an awful thing he endured, it would seem, the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah, good news that he's he's home and seems to be recovering. You know, he's trying to go out for a walk and doesn't go very far. But he told me about uh, about four days ago, I, I sent him a note about something. No, a little more than that, five, six days ago. And uh, I got back uh, 
multiple paragraphs and I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't believe it. Um, cause we'd argued on Twitter at some point, I think from the hospital bed, he was doing some cockamamie tweet about the golf ball. So I'm going to have to, uh, give him a hard time about that because wow, he was, he's, he's in the hospital and he was uh, tweeting his defense of the golf ball. So thank God we can laugh about it now. And, uh, and, and it's great. I, I think the most amazing thing is he put himself out there and shared what happened because believe it or not, guys, I know this may shock you, um, that, that will open him up to criticism and hate and all sorts of things in our country, which probably I think is all you need to know about where we are with things that, um, that somebody's sharing those experiences and, and feelings and, and, and relief, the courage it took to do that, um, and to get through it and then to share it and then know, well, I don't think he actually, he said today, he didn't know that that would be the response he'd get. So that should tell you uh, where we are with this and, uh, how it's become a, a political matter, even when somebody who, uh, has it is telling you how, how bad it was. It, uh, it makes it real, doesn't it, Shank? I don't know anyone personally who's had it. I don't know about you, Clates, or Jeff Ogwe, but I don't personally know anyone who's had the virus. That kind of changes things, doesn't it, Shank? Or does it? I don't know. Does it change your own view? Does it make it sort of more real? It certainly informed my view. I, I know one other person who had it and uh, had it for a longer uh, time in, in, in almost maybe two waves, and uh, he shared that with me early on, and so... Um, it, I, it certainly informed my view hearing the things he was saying, which mirrored what Charlie said, which is, you don't want to get this. This is awful. I've had, uh, I felt things I've never felt. He still hasn't regained his, uh, smell and, and taste, uh, completely. And, uh, so when you hear things like that, yes, it, it certainly informed my, my view and my coverage of all this. And unfortunately though, I think that, um, you know, there haven't been that many people in the world of golf who who've shared their story. So you've also seen the opposite view, uh, or not not the opposite view, but a view that has been a little bit more complacent from some in the world of golf. And uh, hopefully, Charlie's message uh, changes that. I mean, have you just seen in it with the behavior of some of the players and some of the stories you heard in the first couple of events that uh, they weren't really treating things too differently and and as each event has gone they've they've ratcheted up things a little bit in terms of of how they uh, are seen uh taking this uh situation and handling it that stigma response is weird isn't it clates do you know anyone I've, I, as i said i don't know anyone who's had it have you known anyone who's who's had the virus clates uh no i don't yeah. but um how did charlie get it jeff or d- does he, have he any, just does he does idea? not know he no, does not yeah. know. He made a couple of trips, but they were driving trips, and he said he was mostly very cautious, uh, distancing, mostly wore a mask. Um, he just doesn't know, and, uh, and that's the other scary part about it. Yeah, indeed. Jeff Ogilvy, you you know anyone? You, you're lounging around Melbourne these days, man of leisure for the most part. Yeah, well, uh, I don't personally, I don't think. I mean, Pete Cowan, I listened to the McCallum podcast, and he talked about it a fair bit. Um, he, uh, he didn't sound like he had a lot of fun. Um, but I haven't talked to him and a few, I've just heard, I mean, then there's Watney stories, right? Who's didn't really seem to feel anything. Um, it seems pretty random how it affects people yeah. and there seems to be no rhyme or reason about it. So we've just been worrying about my parents and stuff, keeping them in safety. 
Yeah. It, well, that's yeah, exactly. I stay with my mum quite often during the week because I live miles away from the studio here and she lives closer. But she's 82. And I'm coming to work every day and going home thinking, yeah, I'm not sure I should be doing this. <laughs> got to be, got to be, uh, got to be a bit careful about that sort of stuff. Uh, talking about the PGA Tour and coronavirus, Shaq, you touched on it there. It's a real moving target. Do you reckon they expected this? The tour and how they handling this sort of growing number of cases? Yeah, they would have had to have expected there was going to be some cases, wouldn't they? You, you can't isolate a bubble of a couple of hundred people, surely. Yeah, no, especially the way they're doing it. Um, yeah, no, that's been their response that this is what we expected. Um, I went back and looked. I didn't see many players saying that um, <laughs> I expect us to have a lot of cases. So that they're kind of moving the goalposts a little, understandably, as things also. I think in part because when they went about this and started thinking about this return, uh, they uh, were not anticipating our country going in this direction. Mm-hmm. People who were, at least based on their their actions and, and some of their comments, people who were watching this closely knew this is where we were headed with the South uh, if people weren't careful and we opened up too fast, and here we are. So, um, you know, I, they, they're, uh, I think they're doing mostly pretty well, but they, they still have some weird uh, uh, loopholes and ways that uh, it's not ideal compared to what the other sports are trying. But I'm, I'm, I feel like the, uh, as they at least are showing signs of really each week trying to button up little loopholes and different things, that, that, that that's a great thing and that they'll be able to keep this going. And that, but the, the question ultimately, and this has nothing to do with uh, health that I have, and I don't really see people addressing, and and it really is one that needs to be answered. It's let's see, it's uh, we're recording this on July second. Uh, the PGA Championships a month from now, and uh, it's a major championship, and I don't think a major championship is a major if the rest of the world feels uncomfortable coming here and has to quarantine for two weeks, uh, and uh, all the things that may have to happen. And I obviously would love to hear what Clates and, and Jeff have to say, but I, uh, you know, h- how do you how do you say to Lee Westwood or Tommy Fleetwood or Molinari or or, or uh, any number of players, Adam Scott, who's I believe still in Australia? Um, yeah, we're going ahead with this major and tough luck uh, that you you don't want to come here. I mean, I mean, they can do it and they can play it, and it'll be a major, but. Uh, I don't see the Masters, for instance, finding that to be an acceptable thing. I could see the PGA and the USGA finding that an acceptable way, uh, acceptable way to play a major championship. But the Masters, given its appreciation, love for the international portion of the field, I don't, I don't see it. And now that's they have more time for things to change. But the path we're on, it just doesn't look like this is a place that people from around the world will want to come to. Jeff Ogilvy, what do you reckon? Would you go back to the States to play in these circumstances? Uh, this year, after watching the news for the last little bit, I don't think I'd be heading back there too quickly. But um, sh- the Wingfoot US Open's a little bit frustrating for me that it's this situation because um, I'd look forward to that one a little bit for obvious reasons. So that's a bit of strange. I mean, I'd, I'd just see there's economics behind all this and there's the PGA and the USGA. I mean, the revenue from these tournaments is very important. Um so there's more to it than I understand, but I feel like 2020 should just ride off and fix all the other issues and get back to the non-serious stuff next year, right? I mean, in the big scheme of things, the golf tournaments don't mean anything really um, when this sort of stuff's going on. So 
I don't know. I mean, it's nice for people to be distracted, though, too. The footy started in Melbourne or Australia the last few weeks, and everyone's loved it. You know, it's been nice to have a distraction, have a real sport back. Uh, I don't know. I'm 50-50, but I certainly think I'll probably just be staying at home in Australia for the next <laughs> six months or so. We'll just <laughs> we'll see what happens next year, I guess. Yeah. Oh, we'll see. Yeah. So you were, you were saying, Jeff, that if you played wing foot, it's a five-week deal for you to play one week? As it stands right now, it's a five-week deal to play one week. Yeah, you got to quarantine for two weeks, play the week, and then come back and quarantine. And I'm not even sure how Australia would be on letting people back from almost a voluntary trip to the US, you know? I don't know. It's it's more about the getting back in. I think you could handle the two weeks there if as long as you could – wow. I mean, I've heard stories about some of the quarantines – from the players, I mean, they're going to the range and practicing every day, which is a little different from how we're quarantining in Australia at the moment. <laughs> um, so two weeks sitting in an airport hotel at LAX doesn't sound appealing, and I wouldn't do that. But if I was camped on a range in Florida and I got to hit balls and just got not, not go near anybody, I'd probably do that. So um, I don't know. I think I'm just 2020, I think, is a year for me to stay here, and I will work it out next year. You're right, Jack. Adam Scott doesn't seem too keen to uh, to head back at this stage. He's having a great time wandering around down here, playing a bit of golf with mates and doing some Instagram stuff, which has all been fantastic. I wonder, Jeff Ogilvie, in terms of the players, hard to maintain motivation with no – well, for Adam, there's no competition. It doesn't look like a whole prospect of it. You'd imagine he'd be planning to go back for the majors, but it's been an interesting break for a lot of players, isn't it, that's sort of been forced on them. They've been doing stuff they might not have otherwise done. Um, there'll be some winners and losers, you would think, Oh, absolutely, yeah, and everything of the sort. I think the Adam Scott level of the golf world, they're winners, I think. Um, they are missing some, maybe some opportunities to, to win some more tournaments, but obviously financially they're all good. They can ride this out. Um, Adam's just had kids the last few years. He gets to spend a bit of time with them, a bit more time in Australia than he's had before. I'm sure he's deep down loving it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But then there's other situations where the young kids, like the Ryan Ruffles and the Brett Colettas, the young Australians who are just kind of – finding their feet on the Corn Ferry Tour and trying to get going and get up on the main tour, their, their whole – those guys in that period of going up, sort of trying to get up to the main tour have been set back 12 months, you know, and that's frustrating when you're 21, 22. Like, that's a long time, 12 months. So there's – yeah, and, and, they're, and they're also in the situation – they're young. They need to play golf tournaments and get some sort of miles in their legs, if you know what I mean, or like you just – you miss a whole year of golf tournaments when you're young. It's it's a long way, but it's you're, you're missing a lot that we didn't miss, you know. So um, there's there's guys in great situations and guys in poor situations um, and everything in between. It's and it's a moving target every day. So, uh, but I'm sure guys like Scotty and the top 10, 20 guys in the world, they're having a good time. I think they're not struggling too much. They'll just come back to their great exemptions and their in their G4s when they it all starts properly. <laughs> Uh, what about motivation, though, Jeff? What happens to players at certain times of career? And uh, not saying that Adams are going to lose motivation, but three or four months at home with the dog and the kids and the beach and some social golf and I don't know. Does it still look as appealing living on the road, particularly with quarantines and difficult travel? Even if you've got your own plane, that's no not as much fun as when you're twenty one, twenty two, is it? Um, it doesn't look as appealing to me, <laughs> but I'm also been doing it for twenty something years, and it's. It lost it a little bit of its appeal anyway, <laughs> the travel and the going away. The motivation thing, I've, I haven't chatted to too many golfers. I've been a 
the odd text here and there and a little bit. Some guys completely lost it and just sat on the couch and wanted to play Call of Duty or something. And other guys were in their nets and their trackman setups and like seeing it as an opportunity to get fit and work on their actions. And some guys just did do nothing. So I think it's, it's a bit of both. And I think, uh, there's benefits to both of those, you know, kind of a control alt delete for your mind is very good for a golfer. Um, and the young guys, a lot of guys are frothing and they're just standing in their garage hitting a thousand balls a day, just ruining their hands, um, Instagramming their swings out every day. So um, I think there's a bit of both on the motivation front. I think it can affect you both ways. But for me, it certainly would have. Well, when I was young, it would have heightened my motivation for when we came back. And now at this sort of stage, it completely extinguishes it. <laughs> More than happy to uh, sit at home and uh, and pat the dog. Shaq, I know you wanted to ask Jeff Ogilvy about uh, Bryson DeChambeau, who sort of did both of those. He both sat on the couch and bulked up and worked like a madman as well. You were saying before we started uh, some of your observations about Bryson. You wanted to get some thoughts from Jeff Ogilvy, which I think will be interesting too. So fire away, my friend. Well, I think it's a simple question. Well, I, I'm just curious what Jeff makes of what he's done. Um I don't want to. I don't want to lead him any more than that. I'm just curious what what his observation is of it and and how it's uh, good, bad, ugly for the game. Well, I mean, Bryson's a very interesting guy. Um, I've always when he came out when he came out five or six years ago, he had that great Masters, had that great finish to his amateur career, played well in the Masters as amateur. I mean, I was intrigued. We all went to his bag to feel his, to see his clubs. His clubs, no other player on tour could break. 80 with his club's first round with no practice with them. Um, crazy upright, crazy grips. Um, but when you saw him hit it, you were convinced that this guy, it might be different, but he knows what he's doing because he hit it really well and he's continued to hit it really well and continued to kind of turn up stones to see if there's any more there. And this will... So I think we're all intrigued and impressed by him anyway. I mean, maybe we roll our eyes when he starts talking a little bit, but it's still impressive Um the length and the depth that he goes into the game. Uh, and this <laughs> latest one, when he came out and said he was going to put on weight, 40 pounds, everyone just kind of laughed. But then he comes out two or three months later and he actually did, um, which is quite a, <laughs> it's quite stri- striking when you see the pictures of the poor before and afters. And it seemed to happen really fast. Um, I, And the distance he's hitting it, I think, is quite obnoxious, how, how you can go from... 300 to 350 that quick um, is telling that there's room to grow in this equipment if you can maximise your kind of move at it, you know, and it's been, I think it'll be good historically because I think it shows us what can be done um, and it'll show us if there's pitfalls to it. I mean, he might hurt himself or start losing his swing or it might be it might be kind of Macca Grady Bobby Bobby Clampett down the road, you know what I mean? Just getting too involved in the technique and the swing and kind of losing the art of scoring. I don't know, but at the moment it looks great. But the distance he's hitting it is uh probably a bit far really for places like Colonial and Hill Ned. Yeah. Well I think uh, the interesting thing, I don't know what you guys have have heard because I think we've all been lectured uh, at some point in our uh, time taking a certain position about distance about uh how it's the athletes and so here's somebody who actually is gaining distance through his efforts physically obviously we know the equipment enables it but he is still doing it with Mm -hmm. his workout stuff and yet i don't hear people going see i have not got one person going yeah see you guys were wrong it's all the athletes all i hear is 
ah, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't look right. This is, and I, and some of it, people just don't like Bryson. And I don't think that's fair uh, to, if you, if you don't like his, his, I mean, I, I love him of course, cause it's just interesting and different, but I'm fascinated by that, that people are not looking this and going, yep, yeah, see, it's just the athletes. They're looking at it and going, eh, this just isn't a good look. This doesn't feel right. This isn't what we want kids thinking golf is. Have you, have you guys gotten that? Anybody? Well, I mean, I, are we holding it against him because he doesn't look like Rory or Seve? I mean, if someone came out swinging like Seve and hitting at 350, we'd, it would, or, or Weisskopf, the way he used to play, it, would, it just looks better. I mean, Bryson just looks like a ball or a fridge just trying to hit a ball. And, yeah. and, and the swing looks great, but you know, I mean, some people are saying, including me, is this what we want golf to look like? But I wonder if, if he looked – I mean, we, I love watching Rory swing. It looks amazing to me. I, mean, I wish the ball went 50 yards shorter so the courses played properly, but are we holding it against Bryson because he just doesn't look as great as Weisskopf did or Rory or you know, Seve or the other really elegant long hitters, Sam Snead? Uh, yeah, I think there's two questions in there. Uh, probably. Yeah. First, for me, Jeff Ogilvy, could everyone do this? If you put on 40 pounds and just worked and worked and worked at it, could you hit it 50 yards further? Is it- well, funnily, I put on about 20 pounds in isolation just because I was eating. Uh, <laughs> so pounds don't count, Jeff. <laughs> um, uh, different kinds of pounds, yeah. It's good for me, though. I've always troubled to gain weight, so I was quite excited. But um, <laughs> the uh, I've never done that, no. I mean, I always found in the gym, I found that I could get my body feeling good, but I didn't really gain much mass in the gym. But I didn't go to the lengths that he's going to. I mean, I... I couldn't eat that much food in a day, I don't think. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Dude. It's never been my thing. Yeah. I don't know. Look, I've seen – I mean, look, when Rory came out, this is the, one of the first guys I've ever seen get strong and get remarkably longer. I mean, Rory was ridiculous when he was 19 and arguably slightly little chubby and not really, like, hadn't seen the gym yet. Not that big. And he hit the ball almost as far then. I mean, he got a lot more consistent and – maybe a little bit longer when he got way, way bigger. But it was it was proportionate to, like, how he looked. This, Bryson's gains are not proportionate from what I've ever seen. It's remarkable. He's obviously a master at getting the driver, to, the driver and the equipment to work to how he's swinging it. And it's, uh, it's truly a scientific experiment. I mean, how can me, how can I, as Bryson DeChambeau, hit the ball further and dominate? I'm going to... Unturn every stone, and if that's eating everything and getting in the gym every day, then I'm going to do that. And he's done it. So from that respect, I think it's amazing because I've never seen anyone gain that yardage in the gym before. Usually, people who got that hard in the gym just hurt themselves. Um, so I mean, Duval, he got in the gym really, really hard. And he changed his body completely, but he didn't hit any further. Um, and Tiger, to be fair, was just as long in '96 as he was in 2005, probably. Um, so that, that's it's intriguing to me that Bryson actually unlock something to create more speed and it's uh, it's going to be amazing if kids don't copy him actually i think everyone i think a lot of kids are going to want to copy so what part then do you think the bulk plays in it has he just found something technique or he looks more like a long driver when he swings it now he's just swinging it really hard so what part does the extra strength play is it maybe a smaller part than we attribute to it or is it a distraction i don't understand all that sort of stuff really but i know 
there's always been big guys in golf like Nick Faldo who couldn't create speed, mm. and there's been small guys who could. Um, I always felt like speed was one of those things you either had or you didn't. Um, power is a little different, you know. See, big guys can get it out of the rough and get it out of those deep plug lies and maybe hit it long and high a little bit. But there's plenty of skinny guys in history who have hit the ball miles with plenty of speed. So um, I'd never really thought that bulking up was a way to get to create a lot of speed. Um, but he's done it, which is amazing to me. So it, it isn't how I want to see golf. I don't, where he was hitting it at Colonial, I mean, I've played there a ton of times. It was absurd where he was hitting the ball. Like, it was not a course that I'd ever seen before. Um, and and just that's a shame that it's it was fun to watch Sebi and Norman and these guys play these holes. It's, it's less fun to see a 60 in from 50 yards. That's the only difference, I think. But it's... I find it an interesting thing he's done. Do we think, Jeff, that the viruses put the USGA and RNA's pre-virus statement on the ball on the back burner, or are they just sitting there waiting for this to blow over, or are they hoping it's all going to go away, or what? Jeff Shacklewood and Jeff Ogilvy. Well, I'll go first. I don't know. Uh, they obviously... There's a big percentage of golf who doesn't like the way golf has gone. There's a big percentage of golf who does like the way it's gone. It's very complicated. There's a lot in I, – I wouldn't even speculate to know what's in anybody's heads, um, to be honest. But I think Bryson will be one that's talked about going forward in that space for sure. Jeff Shane? So, so I think, so, I think it's helped make their case a little bit more. But I just – what is this? when is the time now to make the case? That's the problem. It just seems sort of like an obnoxious thing to be – pushing forward in this time so that's to me the challenge for them it's been nice that uh this thing has made golf get more popular it seems certainly in australia um i've never known enough, as many people talking about golf and as excited about golf so it might not be the time to get too crazy on <laughs> it's just, uh, come and play golf we'll take 30 yards off you before you even start yeah. <laughs> thanks very much mike clayton clayton you were going to say something then i think we we sort of cut you well off. we had in the tournament we played on Tuesday. We everyone got two shots off the first tee, one with a metal wooden and one with one of my two old persimmon drivers. And I'm not sure what you made of it, Jeff. I thought it was interesting that the guys who bombed it hit it. You know, Dave Michalusi and, and Brendan Goddard, who's an AFL football hit, he, he hit the best two. He bombed his metal with them, bombed a wooden driver, and it was not that far behind it. But it was instructive as to. Um, I mean, it was in, in fairness, they only had one shot with it, but some guys couldn't hit it at all, and some guys absolutely ripped it with the wood. So, so, so the next time we're going to play, we're going to have a compulsory wooden drive off one hole. We're just going to leave the two drivers on one hole, and they have to play that, that their ball with the wood. But it, it was amazing how they, in 30 seconds they turned into much better athletes when they picked up the titanium wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's a long-term thing too. If you used... The first shot you hit with a persimmon, like if Bryson pulled out a persimmon right now, he'd probably hit the first one 310. But after a while, you couldn't keep swinging like that once you realised that if you miss hit it, it would go sideways. Um, the swings would slow down after the initial, the first one, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably probably right. Oh, yeah. Do, does, the, does that experiment, Clay, show that perhaps what we keep coming back to, the ball is the better way to control it? You smash a persimmon driver, it still goes plenty long enough, doesn't it? Longer than you'd like to see, like the ones that Michaluzzi and Goddard hit? If well, that was the that, standard driving distance, would that be okay, or do we need to? Well, I, I still think it's too far, too because far. they were shots that 
I never saw Greg Norman hit. Mm. Yeah. Uh, he was he was clearly a better player than everyone that was there, except Jeff on the same league. But I mean, they were a bunch of young kids. But a lot of them. But um, yeah, I mean, you saw that, you, those guys who bombed at Jeff. You saw those shots. They were, they were really impressive. Mm. I mean, they, you know, they ripped them. And for guys who never hit a wooden driver before. And, of course, the funny thing is that they stand over it and they say, God, I thought I was going to miss it. Yet <laughs> n- no one who played in 1970 thought the driver was too small or looked or thought they were going to miss the ball, unless it was the first turn in the Ryder Cup. But, you know, it was um, – it's only that they've got used to something so big that they look at something quite small relatively and think, wow, how do you ever play with this? But no one thought that at the time. And of course, none of them think they're going to miss their five wood. Which is the same size as the old persimmon driver, but with the persimmon driver, there's a whole metal thing happening there. The, the reason I asked that, I wanted to lead back to this shack. You posted an extraordinarily interesting video the other day of a tightlist experiment with a ball with no dimples. That was instructive, wasn't it, on what might be possible with the golf ball? Might it be as simple? Well, yeah, it as was. It was pack? the ex- the extreme. Yes. But it, the point is uh, that if you alter and if you read the USGA distance report, it's so clear where they're going. Uh, they and the RNA that it's it's aerodynamics of the ball have changed and there are ways to to dechange that <laughs> to make it move a little bit more and then therefore if it moves a little bit more and spins a certain way uh, does that then make somebody like what Bryson's doing or all the players pursuing speed 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 do, do they swing like like Jeff said you know after the first shot do, do they start to throttle back a little? And then do we also get to see the return of people getting to move the ball a little bit more and being rewarded for that? And so, yeah, that's an extreme version, but you, you can see where they're building the case in there that, and I mean, I would love to know because we've had to listen to the, the ball makers whine about the retooling of the machines mm-hmm. and the, exactly. the, the horrible saga it'll be. And um, you just would love to know if, if you took, I don't, well, I don't know what the number is, 10, 12, 15 dimples off the ball. Would that would that be it? Would it be that? I mean, if you if it comes to something that simple, uh, that would shape. be that would be powerful. Yeah, change yeah. the shape of the dimples might be uh, as simple as that. If the ball did spin more, Jeff Ogilvy, I think you've made this case before that uh, you can change. Well, I think the case you made was if you were asked different questions as professionals. So if you played St Andrews every week, you'd probably play a different game. Does making the ball spin more? perhaps achieve a similar outcome for those of us who'd like to think that distance has taken too much of the, the focus of the game and that a fuller set of skills or a fuller different set of skills might be, I don't know what I'm asking there. Do you know what I'm asking? You are, you do know what you're asking. I mean, it's the reality is if the golf course dictates the game we play and when you play on the PGA tour or generally at those big courses in the U S the reward is all for distance. You get rewarded for distance. So you work on distance. That's When you go home and you think, how could I have had a better score? Well, if I could have carried that bunker and made that par five. So you go home and you get your track man out and you go to the gym and you try to get longer. But if you played the old course every day, you would end up saying, hey, can I get a little two-iron? I want something to go low. And you would ask Titleist for a ball. that can I, I want one that I can hold up against that crosswind a bit. And distance would be proportionate again, not the only thing. I think the, the, the place you play is... You can't expect pros to not go home and work on hitting it as far as they can, presented the challenges they're presented every week. It's just what they're going to do. It's what they have to do to score. So I think that's as important as anything else. I think it's a very um, 
And really, you could just do that if you just got stopped watering golf courses so much, you know. Um, balls wouldn't run as much. Balls would run a bit more. Things would play smaller and narrower. Um, and position would matter a bit more. And I think, obviously, it would be a holistic look at everything. But I think the golf course is really, really, really important how you present it to, to, to the game and evolve the pros back towards the game that you want them to play, whichever that is. And the old course, I think, would be a beautiful game if you had Brooks and Rory and Tiger and Scotty and Louie and all that to play the old course every day for a year. I think golf would look quite different. You know, Even Bryson would work out a different way to get around. It would be interesting. Would they play the open tees or the normal tees? Oh, whichever tees. I don't think it matters. I think, look, it doesn't make sense to my eye to see Bryson hitting it, the shots in and taking the lines that he was taking at Colonial. Everybody, I think, can see that that's probably not what we want. Um, but how you the, – the, the debate on what we actually want and how you get there, I think, will go on for a while. Yeah. Yeah, what Bryson isn't, Jeff Shackelford, is elegant, which has always been one of the appeals of the game. I think for the spectators, the wonderfully elegant players that there's always been a good smattering. It's not to say there are no elegant players, but you feel like you've had a peek into a future where a swing like Adam Scott's maybe becomes a thing of the past, uh, and that feels like a tragedy. I think for those of us who've grown up with a game where for every generation that's been a part of it, that that beautiful smooth rhythm is what's made great golfers. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love that there have always been a variety of people and the way they swing the club of Simon Hobday and whatever people who look like they're chopping at it. And it's it's and then there are the and then there are the elegant, beautiful swings and the effortless Steve Elkington's of the world. And then, the, I mean, Jeff Ogilvy, a beautiful, elegant swing. Uh, there, there, there's been a great variety, but there's something about. And again, I am not leading people when I've had the discussion with them. I just listen. But it's. Um, it's fascinating to me how how what he's doing is not just people just going oh god that's it's it's ugly but it works uh, it's it's just they're sort of they're just offended by it um, and it's and it's it's the it's a combination it's the weight um, he can be kind of cocky sometimes or come off oddly um, he's you know he's got that thing too when you when he's interviewed where Brooks Kepka has it where the, the 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 initial response now is sort of a defensive and then and and he wasn't that way by the way when he first came out well maybe a little bit but but he still does keep a respectful tone but there is sort of just a an edge and the question is is that what that sort of just rubs people the wrong way getting back to your point which is there's there's always been a sort of an elegance and a grace to the great golfers and and it's why they've been people who get lavished with huge endorsement opportunities and and a different kind of admiration than other athletes. And so, even though we all admire him for for doing what he's doing because he's he, he he's looking at the numbers and he's got reasons and he's somehow still retaining flexibility and and hitting the ball pretty straight. Um, so it's kind of amazing what he's doing, but. In the context of the the history of the sport, it's it's sort of ugly and it's sort of offensive to to people, whether they really really understand why or not. It's a confronting jump, isn't it? I can't recall a confronting yeah. jump yeah. in distance where one player has suddenly done something that's quite so so obvious. What's the business? Well, also, we've never seen anybody transform their body. Whenever golfers' have bodies change like this in a very rapid way, either losing a ton of weight or gaining weight, 
it, it's never worked well. And no. he's defying that too. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Fascinating is the only word you can use for him. Is there a business case, Jeff? Does the game get less interesting? It sounds like that's the feedback you're getting. And is there a danger in that? Uh, co-host of mine, another podcaster, Adrian Logue, once said that the the most dangerous word for the PGA Tour is boring. If it becomes uninteresting, it becomes a not feasible business model. I'm not suggesting that it's all going to suddenly fall apart next year, but in the longer term, if you're at the PGA Tour planning out the next 10, 15, 20 years, does what the game looks like play much of a role, do you think, in maintaining that business? And does does what Bryson's doing have any impact on that? This Jeff or the other GI? Oh, sorry, Jeff Shackelford. Uh, well, the problem with them is, and, and I, I don't know, you know if Jeff will want to attest to this, but they're so marketing focused and their belief is that the, the sale uh, of their sport uh, to, and they want to attract more women is, is athleticism. So that's why Jay Monahan never refers to them as golfers. It's always athletes. And they think this is what will, will sell and be less boring when we know that this version of the sport is incredibly boring, it's, it's, there's a rush, there's an excitement when the guy slashes at a tee shot or when somebody drives a short par four, but the, the, the thrill of the going for the par five and two decision, I mean, you could go through the list. The, and now with Tracer showing, you know, when people see a ball move, they get so excited. It's like, well, gosh, could you imagine what Tracer would have looked like? Uh, and I know I'm getting into a broken record mode here. We've done this on the show, but you know, Ray Floyd or Bruce Litsky or Lee Trevino were were playing in the Tracer era. How unbelievable people would find that to be. I mean, Bubba's the only one that makes people ooh and ah. So they think this is more interesting uh, watching somebody hit it a long way because it's it's athletic and there's just this whole sort of that's what will sell. Uh, and I I don't agree, and I don't I don't. I don't know how you guys feel, but I don't. I don't think long term it is more exciting or interesting. You got to take the emotion out of it, and I think I agree. I don't think in the long term it is more interesting, but that doesn't mean it can't be a successful business, does it? Um, I mean, if you're running the PGA Tour, Jeff Ogilvy, things are going pretty good, aren't they? They've done a pretty good job. It'd be hard to suddenly change tack for no obvious reason. Uh, the PGA Tour would have grown just in the time you were on the tour. I imagine you saw it grow. Not exponentially, but not far off it. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's an unbelievable organisation. But Jeff's right; it's not really a golf organisation. It's a marketing company, really. Um, it is now, at least. Um, the product is less important than how the product is sold. I would say is their headspace um, because that's what's shown success. They've got a monopoly; they don't have a competitor, so they can just market the market the hell out of it. You know, um, it's and sometimes I think golf is. The golf department, or how the game looks department, is probably quite small at Ponte Vedra compared to the selling sponsorship department. You know, so I don't think they mind as long as they keep getting sponsors to write checks. I don't think they really. I th- obviously they they know golf is their product, but I don't think they pay the attention to their product as much as they do the marketing of their product. And I think eventually that is would be the undoing of every company if. The product becomes no good. I don't. I'm not saying what a good product is, and I think their product is all right, pretty good right now. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, people love golf historically, but it has to. And maybe we're all different. I mean, me, Jeff, and Clates, especially, and Rod, we look very lovingly back at the history of the game and um, how the game looked then, and maybe less so now. But uh, they still keep getting. 
I mean, sponsors to write $10 million checks and they get rid of a tournament and they just get a new one. It's not, they're not struggling to sell their product at the moment. So I don't know why they would have any concerns at the moment. But um, You don't fix what's not broken, do you? <laughs> well, you can't really. It's no. what a success they've got. And all the other tours in the world are struggling and they're, they, they're kind of navigating through everything pretty well. So um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But, yeah, I can imagine. Can you imagine Trevino on the – Shot traces. I want to see. Oh. I want to see that. Yeah, absolutely. Just the trajectories. Sevy on the. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> well, Clay, you tell a great story about Sevy, don't you? Wentworth, how far did he slice that three on? You told me. Oh, that three on around the trees. Yeah. Well, Jeff knows how wide that tenth green at Wentworth is. It started at the at the left quarter of the green and sliced around that pin on the on the far right side. That the only way that everyone else got to was just hit it over the trees. You know, it's a par three that you, where you hit, basically hit over the pine trees to the back right pin. So you either the whole field either played left that day and putted across, or, or hit four and up over the trees. You just sliced it around. It was incredible. It was one of the most amazing shots I've ever seen. And for him, it was run of the mill. Um, I had an argument slash discussion with a guy on Twitter a couple of days ago it's about not like you, Clates. Wow, that's <laughs> no. You sure? Uh, come on, you're, we were, you're exaggerating. I do. Ex- I had to explain to him why it was more exciting to watch Arnold Palmer hit a three-wood in 1958 to the 13th green at Augusta versus someone hitting a five-iron. I thought, well, I thought it was kind of obvious, isn't it, that why watching someone hit a three-wood onto that green is way more exciting than someone hitting a five-iron. I mean, there's no fear with a five-iron into that green. Well, Jeff's played it. We haven't, but he can answer this question better than me. But it's a way scarier shot with a three-wood, I would have thought, wouldn't you, Jeff, into sure. 13th <laughs> Augusta? It's pretty scary with a five iron too, by the way. Um, <laughs> three wood. I can't even imagine hitting a three wood onto that green. Like I'd like to see someone do that, to be honest. I mean, I've seen guys try. Um, yeah, well, you're Palmer, right. That would be amazing. Yeah, um, Palmer, Palmer made three in 958. You know, he, th- he thinks he's made double bogey at 12, so he goes with a three wood at 13 and knocks on the green and makes an eagle. Well, that's a. And there were the, and there are all those great two iron shots in the. And three irons in the 80s that Watson and Freddie and Seve hit those amazing long irons in there. But once it becomes a five iron, it's just, it's gone, isn't it, really? That kind of real kind of, wow, this is a scary shot fact is gone with a, with a five iron. The momentous decision that Jones talked about, I think, is what you're getting at there, Clates. And yeah. the viewer knows. This is something, Jeff Ogilvy, I get no support for this position that I seem to take. And Richard Gillis from the unofficial partner is particularly nasty about tearing me down every time I mention it. But I reckon that... Professional golf survives. Its viewership is golfers. Very very few non-golfers watch golf. They do at the Masters and the Open and the Ryder Cup. We know that. They're big sporting events. But week in and week out, the PGA Tour's customer, they're golfers. And whilst the non-golfer has no concept of that momentous decision that Clates is talking about, I think about, you know, Faldo hitting two iron there in 96 when he played against Norman, and I still get the hairs on my arms sort of raise up. What a moment that was for a golfer to view. What role do you think the audience plays there? Am I right, or are you on Gillis's side where I'm kidding myself? And... No. Well, who's, uh, who are you asking? Oh, sorry, Jeff, Jeff Ogilvy. You, because yeah. you're in the arena. You're the entertainer. and the, You know what it, You know what the, the golfers in the crowd are thinking. Is Ogilvy's pulled out the 60-degree here. This is, a, this is a gutsy shot or this is a foolish player. The non-golfer doesn't get any of that, do they? I have to be honest, <clears throat> I think most people who come to watch us play golf tournaments are blown away at even the shit shots we hit. <laughs> um, Which is fair enough. Because it is quite 
remarkable if, to how professionals hit the ball and play golf if you haven't been around it very much. And it's just like when you go to the, the tennis or anything high end, it blows you away. And I think golf blows you away more than anything because you just can't imagine how they do that. Um, so I think obviously at our end of the game, people who have kind of dug into the depths and like played us tragically as much as we have, we do do that. We want three wood into the 15th and we want to see that thing. But to be honest, I have to be honest, most people that come to a golf tournament are happy just to see us hit it in the air and hear the noise that it makes when we hit it. Um, not all, but especially on site, just watching the best in the world play golf is quite an amazing thing, regardless of the shots they're trying to take on. That's the way I see it anyway. Yeah, of course, yeah but, sorry. but sorry, Jeff, but the best shot I saw last at Sandy's Beach this week was, and and I'll I'll remember it in twenty years. My five on that five was a freaking unbelievable shot. Like the the pin, the pin was in this tiny back tier at the seventh hole, into a decent wind, like a big wind, forty miles an hour probably. And this five iron just ripped through the wind, but kind of a soft rip. It was like the most unbelievable shot. It was like incredible. I mean, Steve Agar Agar and I watched that and thought, there's not many guys in the world can hit that shot. So you can hit great shots with five irons or three woods, but that was such a cool shot because it was such a tiny target and it flew up there and stopped with a perfect flight and a perfect sound and a perfect hit. So, it was fun. It was a fun shot. I, I remember it too. That stands out for the last two days. Yeah, yeah it was an amazing shot. Was it as good so, as the so five iron you hit out of the trees at Metro at the Masters in 2014 after you had to chip it sideways deeper into the trees and then you almost made the putt for par? Yeah, that was pretty nice. <laughs> that, was, that was a bit lucky, that one. That I was think. insane. <laughs> uh, you hit it through a wall of trees somehow to about 10 feet. That uh, If you'd made that putt, that would have been the highlight of my golf spectator if, if you'd made that putt. <laughs> it was... The five iron's up there, but if you'd made that putt, that would have just been unbelievable. You hit it in the trees right, uh, Jeff Shackelford, so deep in the trees he had to chip it further into the trees so he could get a swing. And then from there he pulls out a five iron, hits it somehow over and through this wall of trees. What, about 10 or 15 yards of draw, Jeff? To somehow... like I can't remember, but it, was, it ended up about 10, 12 feet. It was insane. Yeah. You, you <laughs> must have emerged from the trees and thought, shit, how did I do that? <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So uh... Yeah, but so you guys have just highlighted the thing that that, that... – that I see when people go to a tournament, they're most enthralled by spin or seeing a, a shot where you know the player placed it in a spot and fed it down uh, or shaped the ball or controlled the ball and things that they just know they can't do. And I, so I think that's what gets the crowd going more than, than anything else. Recovery shots are amazing because when you go to a golf tournament, you get to get close to the player and you get to hear the conversation and you see it. Those are the things to me that are and and by the way, all this and that, yeah, the thing that didn't get enough attention is that USGA um, uh, distance report their survey, which was a robust survey. Uh, I mean, it wasn't like it was a hundred people. It was, I believe, the TV portion was uh, or the or the tournament viewing portion. What you like was twelve thousand response uh, respondents, and and you know, distance was just not there compared to. Uh, they love tracer. They love recovery shots, the venue, the history, the vibe of the place. So there's now data that shows that that those are things that people respond to, and those were core golfers. But uh, so I, whether whether again the timing now is such that they can do this, I don't know. I mean, they have yeah. Look, they have Tiger Woods on their side. They have Jack Nicklaus. 
and they're still afraid to to move. So um, I guess the only change, and since we've all been talking about this, is that the RNA is way more on board. In fact, might even be more willing to 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 lead the charge or take the the heat than ever before. Oh well, they definitely are ever before. But um, so that's something. Just just to back up a bit, Jeff Shackelford. So what was the point of that tightless? Dimpleless ball video. Do you think? What oh, the, what, it looked what's to me the like the usual. Uh, it looked like the European side, and where we're doing our you know European tour knockoff social media thing, and and I love the idea. I mean, it's fun. It just shows you, and you know, to show what they do in R and D, and to kind of remind players what what goes into a product, and and uh, the difference between <laughs> you know uh, how good you can look and how bad you can look. I mean, I love it just from that point of view. I don't care if people are knocking off the. European tour, they're the best at, at yeah, that more stuff, of it. and those exactly. things are great. Cheap you get copy. to see personality, you get to see a few players you maybe didn't know. Yeah, it's just great all the way around. But it was also, for those of us in this little sector of this community, uh, fun to, to, to be reminded uh, that aerodynamics and all that, that there are certain elements too. So I think that was, it was strictly just for that Just a bit reason. of social media fun. Nothing, there's no bigger sort of message behind it, like, look what's happening. No, oh stuff. gosh, no. In fact, the opposite for them is to as we know, and hi, Wally, thank you for listening as always, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to, you know, sell more golf balls and make them go longer and straighter and don't ever think of doing something that goes the other way. So, no, they, if they knew that we viewed it as a positive that way, that thing probably wouldn't have seen the light of day. <laughs> Just Speaking of um, <laughs> t- TV ratings and venues, it'll be interesting to see how the LPJ event rates at Inverness. yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how much they'll promote that or that people... Yeah. I mean, Inverness, it's been so long now, Clay, since yeah. Inverness hosted something really big. Um, Jeff, have you played Inverness? I feel like I have, but I can't remember when. So uh, it was a, a PGA in 93, right, where Azinger beat Norman? Was that the last Yeah, that was the last major, really big event there. I think there's been a senior open. I don't have to look, but... but uh, yeah, and it's it's just a. Have you been there, Clates? It's really a such a neat property and club and all that. Um, yeah, no, they have, to go there. Yeah, but it is but, a radical transformation. I, I I mean, it's great. They had these horrible tree plantings, and it was like they were left low to the ground, so you'd have to wedge out, and uh, it was just chintzy stuff to offset the ball. Now they've gone the other way. I mean, there's hardly a tree left, and they've gone full. Uh, you know, fully embracing the Ross, getting rid of the Fazio holes. Uh, I, I don't mean this to be rude, but it's maybe the best course that the LPGA Tour has ever played. I, I, the LPGA Tour, I'm not counting U.S. Women's Open, but the actual tour, in terms of quality architecture, it's it's right up there if it's not the very best. So it's so great. They're opening their doors like that a year early. They're not clinging to some stupid thing where we wanted to unveil at the Solheim. It's it's just it's uh it's exciting. Are they moving more that way, Jeff, the LPGA? No, so, the com- uh, no. Wands, no, he doesn't no, care about architecture. No. Yeah. No, the the Yeah, no, he's not into court. Like Wilshire, somebody I know talked to him about Wilshire. Oh, I know who it was. I don't want to say a, re- a reporter. Uh when Wilshire was such a hit here and people saw uh, just just yeah, just visually interesting and some really quirky holes and fun stuff, and and and, and like, it just didn't it didn't really register with him that that was a a big. It was more that it was in the middle of the city and near Koreatown and, and had atmosphere. It, the, the architecture didn't um, 
didn't click with him as an important thing. That's because that's the one thing you would think they could sell was yeah. you know, the interest in that match at Seminole. People not interested in that match so much as seeing the golf course. And you would think the one thing the LPJ could sell was going to great golf courses because they don't need the venue space that the men need. Well, and we, I think we're seeing it. I mean, we've talked about it in the past before that the LPGA would have a chance. Well, they've got Inverness for a Solheim Cup. So there, there are signs that they are getting places that no longer could host the men um, for tournaments. I'm, I'm drawing a blank. There's one or two others that are really good standout examples of that. Um, so I think that's it's, it's there. It's just uh, it's whether the clubs want to do it. But I think more and more courses... Uh, don't want to see, they don't want the, the Bryson DeChambeau thing to come to their course. They don't think that's that cute. But nothing's changed on that front. People still don't want to see a, their course made look ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, the three three of the best courses that LPJ play are in Australia. They play Royal Adelaide, yeah. the Grange and Kionga. That's a great three-year cycle of courses they play down here. And they all love coming and playing down here because it's, you know, they're such cool courses. Well, you can see that they have fun, don't they, Clates? And, and professional golf, Jeff Ogle, we know, isn't always fun and can't always be fun. There's a serious side to it you're playing for a living. But you can tell when you watch those tournaments, Clates, the players are enjoying the questions being asked for the most part, and you get the feeling they're not asked those questions that often. That's got to be important in the entertainment factor, doesn't it? Yeah. And watching Indy play at Royal Adelaide this year was fantastic. I mean, she looked so ord- she's such an ordinary-looking player Yeah. until you watch her a lot. And you realise that the four or five difficult holes at Royal Adelaide, the holes you've got to hit shots on, you know, six, seven, 12, 14 and 16, every single time she hit the shot, every single time, whack, right in the middle of the green. And you realise this is not ordinary at all. It just looks ordinary until you really think about what she's doing. And it was genius what she did. Well, it's the opposite of DeChambeau, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing spectacular well, that, looking but Adam up at the end, and goodness me, she can play. That's what I wanted to ask Jeff about, because that, that's the other thing about DeChambeau watching today. It's just such a joyless <laughs> exercise to looking, looking. He may be having a blast, but he looks miserable. Uh, and I see, I see that more and more where guys don't look like they're having fun, Jeff. Is, 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 is professional golf I – mean, do you remember times where, where – it was didn't feel like a job where it was just fun to go to the office and today's going to be another adventure or is professional golf always kind of a, a burden and a job for pretty much most guys most of the time um it starts out as a journey and an adventure i think for everyone um but it becomes very groundhog day when you do it for a really long time and tuesday morning you're on misery hill hitting balls <laughs> to try to get you a new shaft and your driver or yeah you just it just becomes very same and you sort of you spend most of your time not playing your best right so it gets pretty tedious and that's why guys look grumpy all the time i think deep down if you ask them do you like what you do everybody likes what they do but because it is a frustrating thing to do after a while um and i don't better courses keep guys in better moods yeah but they have to be better courses set up you can't go to Shinnecock in the US Open. That doesn't keep right. going good moods, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Um, 50, 50 weeks. Everyone's in a good mood at Augusta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and when you go to Riviera, even though guys have three-putted and take, made six on ten, they still had kind of, Jesus, this is a good week, in it? We love this tournament. I mean, it's still, right. even though they don't know, they do know that they like significant courses better because every guy on tour thinks of himself as a guy who can sort of beat the other guys, you know? So the tougher the test, 
not the tougher, the more interesting the test and the more it takes a bit of working out. I think guys like that challenge yeah. and they like the history. Even like the guys went to Inverness, the guys would understand that um, or to Southern Hills or any of these sort of places, they understand there's history there. They might not know it, but they do have a reverence for those sort of places. Everyone does, and they're, they're certainly more enjoyed weeks. But, yeah, the job can get tedious after yeah. a while. I mean, Clates would tell you it was way more fun in his day, probably less fun in my day, and gradually it's becoming less fun just because it's too much of a business, yeah. too many entourages, too much money, too many people standing on the range on Tuesday morning, oh, um, yeah. all that sort of stuff. But... From Thursday morning to Sunday, it's still a brilliant job, you know. I mean, it would be yeah. helpful if it wasn't four hours and 30 minutes on Thursday, Friday. It would be a bit more enjoyable. There's a few things that kind of get tedious, but it's still yeah. a brilliant job, brilliant job. But it's still very understand. You've got to give guys a bit of a break for how they look on tour because if you look at most people when they play golf, they have moments of looking miserable too. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just the nature of the game. It, it just, is. It beats you up mentally. One of the things that appeals. I'll ask you shortly about your – uh, relationship with the game now, Jeff, because you're not playing that sort of the golf for the most part these days. You're wandering around Melbourne playing amazing golf courses and having a good time and no doubt mentoring some young people. But before we come to that, you said standing on Misery Hill trying to find a shaft for your driver. A uh, little plug for another podcast I do for Golf Australia magazine, The Thing About Golf. Jeff Shackelford, I spoke with Kari Webb a couple of weeks ago to publish the episode the other day. She was asked to pay for golf clubs last year. She approached a manufacturer about wow. get, getting – that was my reaction too – about wow. getting, getting a set of irons and was told that they'd be – I can't remember what – she didn't tell me what the oh. price was, but uh, what does that say? Because we know it happened to NB Park last year as well. She was asked to pay for a three-wood uh, by one of the, the major manufacturers. Uh, I think they offered – Speaks as I sat next to Kari on a plane across the aisle uh, not long ago, and I didn't really realise it was her until we – Till we till we landed, so I'm not one. That, on. uh, I were you but, at the pointy end, or was she in cattle class? <laughs> we were both in 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 um, main cabin extra, which which is cattle class. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's just astounding that they give they'll give free stuff to a 14 year old to a to to a mid amateur who's a, a successful stockbroker, and and then you hear stories like that, and you just go, what and what in the hell is that about? Yeah, imagine being that rep plates, being told so by head office weird. she she can have four iron to, to wedge. It'll cost her ninety bucks a club. That's the whole time. Imagine oh, being to go out to deliver that message, Clates. I don't know where I heard it. I, I've got I've got something like it was a twelve hundred dollars set of clubs they offered them to her for nine hundred or something. I I'm mean, it's sure. just, I, I didn't ask her about. I didn't ask her who the manufacturer was. I, I I think she was trying to make a point, and she'd made it. I think, and I didn't want to press her on. Yeah. It in that sense, but. I don't know what the what the prices were. I mean, she could afford it if she wanted to. Well, it's not the point. But no, it's not. Anyway, a plug for Mizuno. They offered yeah, a Mizuno was free, which was nice of them. But it's beyond. I mean, Inby Park. Having to she was world number one at the a, time. Having to I mean, pay for a TaylorMade three wood. Just, <laughs> I mean, did, did, and, and by the way, she's one of the greatest fairway wood players hmm. in the history of the game. Yep. I mean, just you know, the person you want playing that club. More than pretty much anybody on the planet. There are 23 humans in the LPGA Hall of Fame. That's two of them who've both been asked to pay for golf clubs in the last three years. <laughs> so the, the game oh. more broadly has something to think about there. I think that's a, it's a really telling, telling thing. It's just, just She talked about you know players wearing hats for no money just to get access to sort of free equipment and 
when she says to them, if you were, or were offered $10,000 for a sponsorship on your hat, would you take this? Oh, well, no, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to get my free clubs. Like, you know how many clubs you can buy for 10000 bucks? And she would know because she was just quoted on some yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, mm. just a few months ago. I won't ask you about that, Jeff, because it's uh, – I don't know what you – I don't know what to say about that. That's uh, – and she, as she pointed out, she hadn't paid for a golf club since she was 14 years old, so she wasn't expecting – to be asked, and I, I don't think anybody thinks there's anything wrong with that, but after seven majors and a Hall of Fame career, seems an odd time to be quoted a price um, on clubs. Anyway, that's good. go and check out the thing about golf. She had some other really interesting stuff to say about all sorts of things, but that one is the one that will probably grab some headlines and understand. <laughs> so, Jeff Ogilvy, back to you about your changing, or, or I don't know, has it changed your relationship with golf? You wrote in Golf Australia magazine recently that bumming around Melbourne, playing golf, very different to playing the PGA Tour, and you've developed a bit a bit more of a relationship like you used to have with the game. What's golf like for Jeff Ogley now? Well, yeah, well, taking the COVID out of it, it's been really nice. The COVID's been a bit weird, obviously, because I sat and looked at my computer screen for two months and really wasn't allowed to do anything. Um, and then they opened golf back up, and golf in Melbourne is extraordinarily busy. Um, it's because of all the protocols you have to book on a t-sheet before you get on and i'm not very good at that because i've never had to do it <laughs> so pretty much every course is full every, full every day so it's hard to actually access a golf course at the moment in melbourne but saying that it's nice to not have to worry about lie in bed worrying about how am i going to play tomorrow um or how am i going to play better tomorrow than i did today or always sort of it's never out of your head i don't think or at least it was never out of my head as a when it's your job it's always you're constantly your mood and the way everything happens is related to your scoring average and how you're playing. Unfortunately, it's nice to just remove, detach from that, um, and maybe see some things, play with some friends I hadn't played with for a while, play the courses I used to play when I was growing up. I mean, just a little thing like St Andrews Beach the other day. We played two days. It was just nice to play with good players without all the extras that come with the golf tournament um, that can wear you out. So it's been nice. I mean, I like golf as much as I ever have. Um, Got golf clubs lying around my house, swinging them, been hitting my balls in my net in my garage. Um, it's a nice period. I was planning on playing a few this year, like heading out a few times and playing a few in the US, and maybe just sort of playing a few. But now it's yeah, it's we'll we'll reassess in January or the end of the year, and when the world gets normal again, and we'll see. So, but yeah, it's it's very uh, liberating to not have to shoot a good score every day. It perhaps just enjoy just hitting good shots a bit more than the score, which is probably a better way to play. If everyone just got excited about hitting a great shot and just repeat, you know, that's probably the best headspace to play golf anyway. And when you're not have a scorecard in your pocket, it's a bit easier to do that. We'll, we'll get emails now. The uh, play golf without scoring brigade, they'll be, they'll be all over you for that. For some people, there's <laughs> the point to the game. Uh, is there an example of that? The five iron shot that has Clates drooling and that he'll still be thinking about in 10 years that you hit the other day. Would you have ever hit that in a, in a four-round 72-hole tournament? Or was that a shot where it was like, oh, what the hell, I'll have a go? Nah, I mean, I would, hopefully I would have hit it. I yeah, mean, okay. it would be in – if it was if I'd hit it in a tournament in a significant situation, it would be my best shot um, or it would be up there. Um, yeah, that was a normal shot. It was just a normal good one, um, a rare one, but a good one. Um, I'm hitting it really well, actually. Um, I think, again – when I was young, if I took a week off, I felt like I took a month to get back to where I was. But now I feel like if I take two months off, I'm kind of back to where I was. You know, it's kind of different. I think I get rid of all my short-term bad habits and remember all the long-term good ones. Um, 
with a bit of time off. So it's been great. Been obviously watching a lot of golf Instagram and YouTube, <laughs> YouTube, and like going down the rabbit hole every day and on the internet. But you always end up in a golf area and kind of try stuff in the net and stuff. And when I've gone out and played golf, I've actually hit the ball really well. So um, another bonus to not needing to play well sometimes helps you do it. It frees you up, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a yeah. free thing. You mentioned the event at St. Edward's Beach the other day, and I'll, I might get quotes to expand on what that was about and what he's sort of trying to do there. But is part of what sort of happened for you, I don't know whether deliberately otherwise, have you become a bit of a mentor to some of these younger players? That was an interesting event because you had a bunch of really good amateurs, some young pros uh, just sort of starting out on their career. You're a major winner. You know, you're a somebody in golf. You would have looked at you when you were 20 years old and gone, wow, amazing opportunity to – that how's that all unfolding? Do you feel like that's something you you do do deliberately? Or you'd like to do? What's what's the role of Jeff Ogilvie for sort of Australian local up and coming players? Um, I mean, I'd like to. I feel like I do it a little bit naturally. I think most pros generally, when they're around young, enthusiastic kids, um, regain their enthusiasm. Would love to help out because it is a difficult job. Um, to a golf and traditionally, at least in Australia, that amateurs don't get pros don't get advice from kind of tour pros so we've got the guys like clates and finchie and greg and elkington and me and appleby and robert and Chalmers, and we've got so many australian tour players successful guys that we've that the amateur association especially the day you turn pro they just turn your back on you and you never get asked any more questions and so i think there's a whole lot of golf wisdom and knowledge that doesn't get passed down um so anyway and i I'd just like to play a lot of golf with these kids. Selfishly, one, because I want to play golf with good players and it would help me play well as well. But two, I think that the biggest difference for me back then would have been playing golf with guys like Clates and Finchie and guys who had been on tour and you just kind of, you kind of get, it rubs off on you a little bit of what they're learning on tour and maybe you've just got a little bit of an advantage over a kid who doesn't sort of play with guys who'd played on tour. I don't know. That's kind of the space. I want to play a lot of golf with the good young players here. And if I can help um, connect them to our network, you know, the network of the golf network. I mean, you guys are in the golf network. The golf network is massive mm -hmm. if you've done what I've done. And these kids are all landing at LAX and not knowing what to do, you know, and going to public courses and hitting balls or something. It's like, no, 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 we can get you all set up. We can get you much better set up than that. And we can find you some places to live and places to practice and um, – Maybe I could get you some practice rounds with some good players over there if you want. I've got their phone numbers. Just that sort of area, you know, not really coaching, but just use me, you know, ask me a question and we'll go play golf and see how we go. That's kind of the place I want to be. And it's, to be honest, it's selfish because if I get to play with these guys every day, they're actually better than me at the moment, most of them. So if I play with them all the time, it'll help me play well as well. So um, I just like junior golf and the development and I just want these guys to have the chance I had because I was fortunately talented and had a really lucky kind of period, I think, um, in this area. We were kind of sort of 10, 15 years after Greg and, and Robert and Stuart led the way in our generation. We had a ton of – we had 22 guys on the US Tour at one yeah, point I when I was there. Yeah. Um, we haven't had numbers like that for a long time. So anything I can do to help us get back to that situation would be brilliant. Because it's not about the golf swings, is it? The professional golf business, that whole other side of the game, it becomes much more important. And for most pros, in fact, the course becomes a bit of a sanctuary, doesn't it, to get away from all the realities of being a professional golf, which is a very much a business. You, you are you, your own small to medium-sized business, aren't you, depending how successful you are. so It really is. And it's a, it's a difficult – the playing golf, you need to have 
you need to be on top of your playing golf. But mm-hmm. playing golf is arguably the easy part because it's it's quite a uh, strange lifestyle and traveling to different places and a lot of uh, different courses and different grasses and different wind and weird tee times and playing in the rain and weather delays. And then there's just so many things involved in golf that you just cannot be exposed to until you've done it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a skill that there's a lot more to it than just hitting good shots. Yeah, indeed. In fact, that's again, if you're, if you're not doing that, the rest of it's not going to matter much anyway in the longer term, is it? One of the things Kari Webb told me was that when lockdown hit there and she's in Florida, she reckons she was 12 or 13 years old was the last time she would have slept in the same bed consecutively for three months. 30-something years. So if you're wondering what professional golf's like, there's a little peak there. Uh, Three months in in the one place. It's been 30-something years since that. Clay, tell us about the event at St Andrews Beach. And I think you said on Twitter the other day you might sort of organise some more. What, What was it? What were you thinking? Is it Trying to get Jeff and some of these younger kids and hook them up, and or is it just a way for you? Yeah. To watch. Well, that players? was basically. I spoke to the guys at Sandwich Beach if they were interested in doing it. They were. So it was a collect. We had Mike Rolls, who's that amputee guy who lost both legs to um, Meninja Cockle. There's a perspective so, kicking the ass for you, isn't it? When you go and watch Mike Rolls play golf, change so a bit. He's a good player. He's a good he, player. Yeah. He asked me if he could come and watch us. So want to come play? So he played. He was like he loved it. Um, there were some young girls. I mean, Janith Wong was 15, tiny little girl who played well. So there were – Sue O was going to play both days, but she had a coronavirus test because she had a sore throat, which came back negative, so she played the second day. Uh, we had some bunch of young kids. We had amateurs and pros. We had Nick O'Hearn, Dave McKenzie. So there was no – Craig Spence, who won the Australian Masters years ago. So it was a really kind of inter- interesting mix of good players. But what it was, when I was a kid, there were a bunch of – Clubs ran open, so the best pros and the best amateurs played at Woodlands and Yarra Yarra and Heidelberg, and so good courses and average courses, and they all, we all played together. And that disappeared to, re, to be replaced by pro-ams, which was one pro playing with three amateurs, normally not very good players, which is there's a place for that, but it's not a great way to hone your competitive golf skills. So it was in a way we're trying to get back to running opens again where everyone plays with everyone. But rather than just boys, have, have women and girls and seniors and try and make the mix more interesting. So that was so, so we were like 30 players, I think 27 or 30 players and someone from Moona Lynx that course across the road said, can we have one of those? And I think there are, I think Metro might want to have one, Jeff, and maybe Victoria. And So I think we can probably get five or six of them between now and Sort of October or November, which would be good. So next episode in your little intro bio, I'll have to add tournament promoter to your list of nah. uh, positions. Nah. <laughs> to, well, to, to, uh, Michelle Huey, um, Michelle Huey, who works for Golf Australia, did all the work. She she was the uh-huh. she she figured out how to do all the stuff that was important. <laughs> and you, you turned up and had your photo taken. Beautifully done, yeah. mate. That's exactly what we. No, nah, he had his clipboard. He was on the first seat. <laughs> yeah, clipboard. He looked very administration. It was very impressive. <laughs> so, so, so when Dave McKenzie finished, I said, "How'd you play?" He said, "Well, I had a good drive down the seventeenth in the left rough, and I lost the ball, so I, did, I didn't put a score in." I said, "I'll give you seven. Take seven. He said, "Okay." <laughs> That's, so the way That's the yeah. way golf should be. Very Clifford Roberts there. Yeah. Yeah. Take, <laughs> seven. Take seven. That'll be fine. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so that, that kept him interested for the second day. We, so it was, he finished up with a 75. But um, and the, Yeah, and we played um, 12 clubs the second day. You could have 13 oh. if you're – you could, you could 
have 13 clubs if your most lofted was 56. So I think next time we'll play, I think everyone seemed happy to try 10 clubs. Okay. So we, we can fool yeah. around with some stuff like that, which would be good, I think. Good A practice. A lot of people have done that during this time. They've mentioned playing yeah. uh, you know, people who, who couldn't take a card, so they... They walked nine with a, sl- a smaller bag, and they had a blast. Uh, I've heard interesting stories on that front. And, of course, then it reminds everybody that how fun wouldn't it, would it be to see a big-time tour event where, you know, just one week a year, it's the week where we only let you use 10 clubs. And then everybody gets to talk about how they, you know, what they chose, what yep. their team did, you know, uh, what their manufacturer did to to de-loft this to close some gaps you know it'd be a great story all the way around and of course you know it has no chance <laughs> that's right it, <laughs> it was doomed from the start wine and good moan idea. and moan and wine oh, what Clates has organized there though jeff shackleford and there's a real place for the game in this isn't there is just a collection of a whole bunch of wisdom some of the names that he reeled off there most people wouldn't be familiar with david mckenzie he's got a fantastic golf mind and he's a guy who's made a living playing the game for 30 plus years uh and you know, most people in most golfers in Australia might have noticed his name. It hasn't been a prolific winner, but there's some wisdom in there that every you know aspiring golfer can learn, and then a collection of people with that kind of wisdom. That's a fantastic. I love that idea. It's a real carnival, isn't it, Chef Shackle? A real festival sort of feel that he's got going there. Yeah, no, it'd be wonderful. I mean, that's the thing that this pandemic's mm. highlighted for people is that we need some some variety and in, in events, and uh, whether that. You know, right now though, it's so hard to, to to just get a normal tournament going. So it's kind of stifled that discussion, sadly. So last thing to quickly cover off, and Jeff Ogilvie's already sort of touched on it, how hard it is to get a tee time here in Australia. I understand that there's been a real spike in golf playing numbers in the states as well, Jeff Shackleford. So of course, the very next and obvious question, particularly for those of us who always want to ask the difficult questions, how do we hang on to all these people who've either discovered or rediscovered golf at this awkward time? Well, it let, I mean, I, it's just we have to hope that their experience is good at the courses they're going at. Um, and that, to me, is the number one thing because, obviously, right now, people have a, a low bar for they're just happy to be able to go out and play. They're happy to get the time. Uh, it's safe. It's a safe activity. But the golf industry here, it also is is still uh, very uh, extreme and it's, and then the, the service it provides and the experience it provides. And so, uh, the, the, I mean, the most amazing thing has been that the conditioning of courses, other than there's a very awful situation developing at Yale, but that's just a one-off for the most part, we haven't had a drop off in maintenance. So that's good. And then you also have a lot of people who are very happy to be playing golf and not too bothered by the fact that uh, the clubhouse hasn't been open or the pro shop has only been uh, open to two people at a time, all that stuff. Yeah, you don't really hear much griping about that. So, um, And I've heard more, uh, the negative stuff I've heard more about uh, on the club level, uh, just either people uh, not used to their course being as busy or missing some of the elements or the places having some financial issues because they relied so much on Hmm. wedding and food and beverage revenue. So those are, those are things, but those aren't experience related as much. Um, and it's hopefully making more courses do some outdoor dining or, and and outdoor seating that, that haven't done it, even though, you know, they're at a beautiful place. And, um, so there are a lot of positives that way, but to me, the number one thing is experience and, 
and feeling like you've got a good value, and that's how you how you retain them. Yeah. There was a really interesting tweet the other day. I, I ended up writing a column based on the sort of notion, and I think something you kind of touched on a little bit there, Jeff, I was just enjoying the shots and take away the scorecard. When you take away a lot of the bloat that we've slowly but surely without realising added to the game, the big tour bag with 14 clubs and you've got to have a range finder and you've got to have this, you've got to have that. and you, We've added all this stuff to golf over the time without really noticing it. And now that's all been stripped away and just the raw game itself clearly still appeals. The, the game that you fell in love with as a youngster, as did Clates and I and Jeff Shackelford, and it, it, it still appeals, doesn't it? In its rawest form, perhaps more so than with all the other stuff. That goes on around it. Well, it's actually, fu- yeah, funny. I find the tour setup might, like, if I go out to play a tour round, the setup is quite tedious with all the stuff I have to take. <laughs> but by choice, I mean, it's look, it's part of the job and it's yeah, great. Sure. And yeah. don't get me wrong, I've got someone to carry it for me. But um, when I play golf by myself, I only ever play 10 clubs. I mean, I had less clubs than ever. They were all bitching that they had to take their 60s and stuff out on Monday, but I never take it anyway. Um, just because I really enjoy. If you've only got half your clubs, and if I've got three, five, seven, nine, and I'm walking up to my ball, 50 yards from my ball, I know it's a five-on, because I know it's not a three, and I know it's not a seven. And there's something really beautiful about no decisions, to just walk up, you pull the five-on out, you make a couple of swings, how am I going to hit this club and hit it on the green? Because it's not one of the other two. Whereas normally it would be, oh, is it a five, is it a six? six oh, yeah. I could get six and hit it low and hit it hard. And hit it. It was like, I don't know, it's like very liberating to just, Walk up and hit it. I mean, I think playing golf with one club would be fun. Um, well, Sandy Jamison's mar- onto something down there at Oak- Oakley, isn't he? That one club thing. It's been hugely successful. You putt with it. You what chip it, with what, it. What is it, Rod? So it's, it's, a, a, it's a great. It's a great idea. Yeah. It's amazing how it works. If you can't believe how good it is, it's a nine. So iron, it, Rod. It's a nine iron length club with a molded uh, putting grip on it, uh, and it's got about the loft of a four iron, and that's it. And when you get there, if you've never played golf before, Sandy hands you the one club. He takes you down to the putting green. He says, "The key. To, it's really quite simple. The key to this is, huh. you you take the club back as far as you're comfortable and swing through as far as you're comfortable. We'll find your level, your current level of ability, and then away you go. You use them ten minutes of, sort of not in, there's no hold it like this. There's no grips, none of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a, he is really look into it. One huh. club golf. It's going to be. I think okay. really, it's a game changer. You've played it, I think, haven't you, Clates? I played with him down. It's a it's a little mm-hmm. lousy little nine hole yeah. public course, mostly par threes. Really rudimentary golf, but it's actually you can you play in forty minutes nine holes. Yeah, it's really fun. It's just you know you have got to cut the ball and hook it and chip with this thing, and it's just such. If you've never played golf before, it's a perfect way to start. And with the putter grip, you automatically put your right thumb on top of That's the grip right. rather than. Yep. Underneath it, which is where the beginners normally, so it helps you grip it properly. It's just it's oh. a brilliant idea. It's amazing how, how well it works. The, the the great crossover I think about it is, Clades, if you've never played golf before, it's not daunting, and if you've played golf your whole life, it's great fun. So yeah, you, no, you, it's, a, you it's couple, such a great idea. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. He's a he's a terrific guy, Sandy. I'll send you his uh, Twitter. Oh, yeah, I see can, the uh, episode thirty four. Yeah, I'll. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. I know, too. Ma- I know you mentioned it, but I just, I just yeah. never seen the picture of the club. That's so interesting. Yeah, well, it's yeah, well, I'm not. Not much to photograph, <laughs> to photograph, to be well, honest. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. But what he does do is he posts regularly photos of people who, their first game and they've parred the third hole. And just the excitement that that brings to people, it's, um, yeah, it's fantastic. We, we I really hope that, uh, and he's, he's got some ideas for other things, hasn't he, Clades? I know he's talked to you about a couple of things, and he's a really, he, he'll be a very important force in the game. He's doing fantastic stuff, which is a lovely, hey. sorry. 
Well, I want, no, go ahead. I wanted, I do want to ask Jeff one last thing before go we, for it. Cause otherwise I was going to wrap up. I thought you were. Yeah. That's why I interrupted. <laughs> hey Jeff. So you mentioned deep dives, uh, any, uh, fun deep dives on the golf history or old tournaments or old, old stuff, uh, that, that struck you that kind of hit home or anything like that architecture, anything like that. I'm just curious. No, I'm all went down the golf swing route. Oh, the YouTube, mm. the sh- I like the shells that they're all up on there now. YouTube, um, yeah. Some of them I'd watched a long time ago on VHS and catching up the Nelson one at Pine Valley and yeah, um, the Royal Melbourne one, the Tomo one at Royal Melbourne. I've watched two or three times. It's a brilliant one. Those sort of things, you know, just finding all the Hogan stuff and the Mo Norman footage. And it's not really because I'm tragic on technique. I just find that stuff fascinating. Um, not really the architecture stuff, to be honest. All my yeah. books, I'm yeah. renovating a house at the moment. All my books are in a box or mm. boxes. Yeah. Um, I love that. If you're a golf tragic, especially the technique and the swing side, yes. and I really <laughs> think that Jones and Jones and Sneed and Hogan and Trevino and that, they showed us what the proper technique was. We just had to look, learn how to look at it. Now that it's all there and accessible, I just I can't get enough of watching them hit it. It's the best. Yeah. There you go. I wonder if in 50 years people will be looking back at Bryce and DeChambeau on the YouTube chat rabbit hole and saying that's when it all started. <laughs> I wonder. Who knows, Jeff? It yeah, might be. It might be. So before that it was yeah. all that Sneed and Adam Scott and Louis Westhays and all those nonsense. This is this is the guy who changed it. Who knows where we might end up? Uh, that's a note to end it on. Uh, Jeff Ogilvy, always fantastic to have you on. We appreciate you taking the time. Great to hear that you're enjoying your time there in Melbourne and getting out and playing some golf and enjoying it. Good to have you along. Thank you. No worries. Been good. Mike Clayton, tournament promoter. I can't believe we've added that to your CV. I'm excited about that. It's been <laughs> great to have you along as always as well. Thank you, right? I enjoyed it as always. As always, indeed. And Jeff Shackelford, always terrific to talk to you uh, and hope things uh, keep being good for you over there in the US. But great to have a chat to you today. Yeah, same here. Thank you, guys. Episode 105, done and dusted. Episode 106 is somewhere off in the future. We never know when with this show. It might be a week away. It might be two months away. But whenever it is, hopefully you'll be subscribed and you'll get it in your inbox when it happens. Here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.